Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. We are back with Vampire Business, of course. This is part two of Crazy Vampy Cool exploring our endless love affair with the vampire. Last week, we took a stroll down the timeline of the pop culture vampire, and I got to share all my thoughts on my favorite vamp TV shows and movies. If you haven't listened to part one, you should go and listen to part one. It's pretty good, if I do say so myself. And this week, we're getting a little bit existential and talking about what vampires mean in a broader sense. Because as we all know, pop culture is a reflection of society and humanity. If you don't know, now you know. And later in the episode, I got to talk to a very special guest and the actual very first guest of the afternoon special podcast about our obsession with these undead bloodsuckers. So if that sounds good to you, let's get started. Vampires, while seductive and alluring, they can tell us a lot about ourselves in a multitude of ways, and perhaps the best way to observe this is via the phenomena of vampire media coinciding with economic recession. Yeah, we usually see vampire movies and TV shows starting to show up more in times of economic crises. Think about the recession of 2008-9. We got True Blood, Vampire Diaries, and Twilight. And now, in 2022, we are on the cusp of, or actively in a recession, and we have The Invitation, Interview with a Vampire, Vampire Academy, Morbius, First Kill, What We Do in the Shadows, Reginald the Vampire, and the list well and truly goes on and on. And we've been observing this trend for a while. S.E. Smith for Bitch Media details that, quote, The new renaissance of vampire storytelling suggests the stars are aligning once more both for metaphorical bloodsuckers and capitalists lining up to leverage the coming economic downturn. Connecting bloodsucking with thirstily stripping workers of their vital essence may be a direct connection with Marx's meaning, but vampires are themselves emblematic of capitalism. Many are wealthy, look at Dracula's Horde or the lavish estates of Anne Rice's books, and also survive purely extractively, growing richer and more powerful by exploiting others. Sometimes that's by way of crudely attacking human victims, but it's more often through the creation of systems to support their existence, like blood banks where humans can donate, mirroring real-world controversies over paid plasma donation, which encourages desperate people to give up their blood so that they can make rent. 
Drug companies, perhaps the ultimate vampires, have been accused of luring immigrants over the U.S.-Mexico border to sell plasma for just a few dollars in U.S. clinics. Blood and plasma are huge exports for the United States, which has relatively lax industry oversight. Vampires are an ideal mirror and foil for economic distress and chaos, and they're the perfect monster for recessions, end quote. And on the flip side, vampires have also been used as metaphors for the other, often providing commentary on race relations and the LGBTQ community. And one show that really leaned into that dynamic is HBO's True Blood. To spice this conversation up just a bit, I went to the source. I got a chance to talk to actor and writer Michael McMillan, who played Steve Newland on True Blood, and we chatted all things True Blood and all things vampires as a whole. Take a listen. So, um, Michael, hi. How's Hello. Going? Hi. How are you, Bobby? Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I've come to you on on vampire business. I've, okay. I've, I've got some some questions about vampires, all things vampires, and I think you're the perfect person. I have received my invitation via bat, and yeah. uh, I've come to the great council. Let's do this. Uh, if you don't know, I send all my guest invitations via bat, guys. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just... I, I love production value. What can I say? Yeah. You know, get, <laughs> theming it up a little bit always helps get your guests excited, you know? Exactly. Oh, gosh. So let's just hop right into it. So I know that you're a fan of all things pop culture, yes. Star Wars, Marvel, Disney, and we could definitely go on and on because I'm a fan of all of those things, too. But are you a big fan of vampire pop culture? I I am. I have to say I got into it more doing True Blood, for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've also always been into the supernatural and the paranormal. Obviously, I do do another... I do a podcast called Bigfoot Collectors Club where we talk about UFOs and ghosts and and cryptids and all that stuff. So I've always been interested in it. I was terrified of horror movies growing up. So I was too scared. I was a scaredy cat. And couldn't watch a lot of that stuff. Like, I was a kid who E.T. gave me major night terrors. I feel that. I I was very good at taking things that would be otherwise innocent and then turning them into terrifying monsters in in my dreams. So there was no way I could handle horror movies growing up. I, I, I didn't really start watching them until I was like well into college. And then I started to realize, oh, these aren't as bad as I thought they were in my mind. And, 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 and I actually ended up, they suddenly, they, they became my favorite type of movies, I think, in a lot of ways, because they are so genre based. Um, But vampires specifically, I, I did watch Lost Boys a lot as a kid. I'm a kid of the 80s. And that was sort of like the first time I watched a movie where I was like, I'm a little brave. You know, that was like, I, that was that was as scary as I could get. And right, I yeah. And I loved that movie because the two kids played by the two Corys were like into comic books and all that stuff. So that one like really felt close to home. I, and I had an older sister who's like six and a half or five and a half years older than me. And so I was like a younger brother living with a sibling who often had older cooler kids Mm -hmm. coming around and she would like 
she hung out with some like artsy guys sometimes, you know, with like, you know, one earring and maybe, maybe like a, a, a trench coat, like the guys would like Kiefer Sutherland would wear in Lost Boys. So I kind of related, related to it in a way, even though like my parents were divorced or anything and I didn't live in Santa Cruz. Um, I was a Midwest boy. There was something very relatable about that that movie, and I, it kind of made me feel brave. So that, like, Lost Boys was my big vampire thing. And then maybe Monster Squad. Okay. Uh, because there was, there was a Dracula in that. Mm-hmm. But really not. I did see, inter- I actually, I was listening to part one of this, and you brought up Interview with the Vampire, the movie. And I did see that in high school. I reviewed that for my school newspaper my sophomore year of high school. So, Oh, wow. Yeah. So the, even that, and, the, and that was like, oh, I'm a little, I was a little squeamish with the blood, <laughs> with the biting of the blood and stuff. Like that was like a lot. I was very pure. I mean, I was, it felt like I was very like Victorian uh, yeah. appropriately. So I know it's a little set a little bit o- earlier than that, but I was like, oh, this drinking of the slitting of wrists and drinking of blood this is very shocking so scandalous um, scandalous yeah very much so but uh yeah i di- I, I missed buffy the vampire slayer cuz i was at uh i was up at uh, a boarding school for high school where i did not have regular access to tv oh my gosh and so i didn't really catch any of buffy until the later some of the later seasons and by then i was like oh i feel like it's a little too late i did watch it eventually but um, yeah. So, uh, True Blood was really. Once I got into True Blood, I was, and of course, it was happening during like this vampire azanazans or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, and I started like going back and watching some of the movies that I missed, um, and kind of getting back into the lore. So that's a very long answer to a short question. No, it was a great. It was, I think you you covered a lot of a lot of ground in that answer. It was beautifully done. I want to I want to um, paint a nice primary coat for this conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Just set the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that you were you were on a little show called True Blood on HBO, and you played a character named Steve Newland. Do you mind telling us about how you got that role and what it was it like like being on the show? Um. Yeah. Well, I very. Sh- Sort of a quick answer. I got the role just by auditioning, and it was one of the shortest audition processes I've ever had, which is rare. Uh, and but how I got the audition was uh, almost didn't happen. I had been working on. Uh, I was on set for an Eddie Murphy movie that no one saw called Imagine That, and I was in my trailer. And this is a very LA story. My my personal trainer at the time had access <laughs> to uh, breakdown services, and breakdown services are the thing is the, like the network that casting directors send out to notices that they send out to like all the agencies in LA saying, "Here are all the available role, roles this week. Here's what everybody's casting." And actors aren't supposed to get a hold of those, but sometimes. Uh, actors, at least back in the day, would. And my friend would get a copy of them and he would send them to me. My personal trainer would send me my breakdowns, you know, when he would get them every other morning or so. Mm-hmm. And I I was sitting, killing time in my uh, dressing room uh, and saw the breakdowns for that day, just happened to pull them up on my, probably my iPhone, if I had an iPhone by that point. This is, you know, over 10 years ago now. And I saw 
this breakdown for this role on True Blood for Steve Newland, and it said very small recurring role in season one, major recurring character in season two. And it was like, I was in my late 20s, I think, I don't even think, I may have been 30, but it said 40s, characters in his 40s, evangelical minister, hates vampires, and I had auditioned for Alan Ball previously for Six Feet Under about five years before that, prior to that. Mm-hmm. Had a very good audition for a recurring character that ended up going to Ben Foster, but it had got, it was down to the wire. It was the two of us. Oh, wow. And it was like a week of waiting and, and thinking that I might get this part on Six Feet Under. And I was devastated that I didn't. I but I'd met Alan in the casting process for that because we had chemistry reads with Lauren Ambrose and um I was I was heartbroken because Six Feet Under was my favorite show and it was on HBO when I moved out to LA and that was the show that when I would meet with agents or casting directors in general meetings and they'd be, and they would say what do you want to do I would point at Six Feet Under and I'd be like that's this is the kind of thing that I, I want to be on this kind of a show. And, and after I, after I missed the boat on that, when people would ask me, what's your dream job? I would be like, I want to be on an Allen ball HBO series. That's what I like. Very, very, very uh, specific visualization in my mind that that's what I wanted. And so it was just by happenstance. I, I saw this breakdown and I called my manager and I was like, you got to get me in for this. I, I just like the sixth sense was like, this is it. This is the part. And she was like, you're too young. And, you know, they're already seeing people. I was like, call the casting directors were uh, Junie Lowry Johnson, and Libby Goldstein, who had cast me on stuff before, who had got me that close to that part on Six Feet Under. I was like, please call them. Please tell them that I need to be seen for this. And I think they even pushed back a little bit, but by the end of the day, I had an appoint—I had an appointment for the for the role, and it was a couple days later, maybe. And I went in, and it was Alan and Alexander Wu who was writing, uh, probably the the first episode that Steve Newland appeared in, which is why he would be there, the casting directors, maybe another producer. And I just walked in, and uh, Alan. I could tell instantly recognized me, remembered me uh, from the six feet. He was like, hi, how are you doing? I was like, I'm great. I'm so happy to be here. He's like, great, sit down. And the audition scene was a role where uh, Sookie comes in and um, they changed it. They took it. They kind of took it from the, from the book living dead in Dallas because the scene had not yet been written for the show, but it was the scene where like Sookie's coming in to investigate the Fellowship of the Sun, and she's sitting down with Steve Newland in his office. And I, 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 I did my first take, and Alan was like, that was great. Do it again. I like the intensity, but this time just smile. Smile the entire time you're doing, doing it. I was like, great. Love that. Did that. He laughed and was like, great. Thank you so much. And I was like, thank you. And I walked out. I went for a hike. And later that day, I got the call that I had the part. And then that turned into a role that was either a series regular or recurring for the entirety of the series. So I I did seasons one through seven in some form or another. Well, honestly, like I can't imagine literally anyone else playing that character. (laughs) Um, 
there's something that's so like pleasantly unsettling about <laughs> about your character and I having you know grown up in the south all my life I think I've definitely seen many people like the Newlands uh just in my regular life so putting them in a vampire kind of world and context was very interesting was it did you kind of approach the character in any specific way like is there anything that was about the character on page that ended up changing on screen or was it pretty straightforward um I mean it was very I felt like it was one of those roles that I looked at and between what came off the page in that initial audition and then Alan's pitch of play him smiling I think just between that note and what was on the page I was like got it but mm-hmm. I I was also very excited because being a pop culture nerd you would appreciate this it was the first time I'm probably I will say I can probably say this with some assuredness I was probably the only cast member that was excited to bring <laughs> a character that was in a book to life on screen you know what I mean yeah. Yeah. Just because I'm a nerd, I was like, I've never gotten to interpret a book character on screen before. This is so yeah. cool. So I was like, <laughs> I geeked out about that. So I went to the books and I would peeked at them before the audition. I had enough time that I could could research the character a little bit. But I went back and I read the first three books going into season two, at least maybe four up to four or five and so I kind of had like, okay, this is what Charlene Harris is going for. This is what True Blood's going for. What do I want to bring to the character? And around this time was when there was a big evangelical minister down in Texas named Ted Haggard who was getting, mm-hmm. who was very anti-gay, uh, you know, all the all that fun stuff. Um, yeah. It was just a big asshole and was preaching all this stuff about you know all this hateful stuff and then was busted i think for doing meth with uh male sex workers and so you know this guy was obviously like you know like many people who like to point a finger was you know every accusation or judgment was also a confession Mm-hmm. And I really looked to, there was a documentary about his church available around that time. And I watched that and I watched Jesus Camp. And oh, I really gosh, started yeah. to build the idea of like, okay, who is Steve Newland? Alan had given me a little bit of backstory from his mind that, you know, because in the show, Steve Newland's character or his father is killed by vampires and they covered up to look like a natural accident, which is one thing that the vampires do on True Blood. Mm-hmm. And Alan had said to me, you know, when we started shooting, he was like, you know, you never, you never got along. With, I don't think you ever got along with your dad. And so I kind of came into season two with that idea of like, here's this guy who's always been angry with his father, never felt good enough, was living in the shadow of his dad, now inheriting in a very like succession Game of Thrones kind of way, even though those shows weren't on the air just yet, that this was a guy who was like, he was inheriting a kingdom and was just thrilled to bits that he was suddenly rising to this level of power in a moment in history when all these vampires were starting to come out of the coffin. 
and make themselves public. So he, it was a big opportunity for this guy to like make a name for himself, make a dollar and um, build, you know, I think in season two, you know, things change as the series go along, but in season two, he's a very ambitious man who's, you know, I think Sarah Newland even says like, you know, you could be governor and maybe president one day. I think that's the the vision that, so I was thinking about all that stuff. Uh, Bush was still in office at the time too. So mm-hmm. I looked, I listened to a lot of recordings of his speeches and watched a lot of YouTube videos of his speeches to get, because I had to find a Texas accent. I wanted to get an accent down that was more authentically Texan and not Louisianan. And uh, so I was looking up like Dallas dialects and stuff like that because we didn't have anybody on set helping us with these accents, you know? So I was like, I want to have a good accent or as close as possible. And I, 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 I can't remember now, but I looked up where the Bush family was from and I was like okay this is close enough so I think if I if I look to Bush and of course at the time we're also sort of lampooning those you know right-wing political figures uh of the mid-2000s it's like if I can if I can get some Ted Haggard and some and some George W. Bush and then a little bit of my own in there I think I think I can get this guy's voice down yeah, and I think you nailed it completely. Like, thanks. It's it's it shows. Um, I don't know. I I love the character, and you mentioned uh, at the top of the episode that you were on the show for like the majority of it in some capacity. So, do you have a favorite like memory from filming? Like, you know, whether it's like a cast memory, uh, something you know that just happened on set, like a favorite tradition maybe that you did on set, like anything. I mean. I have so many wonderful memories from that show. It truly was a dream job. Uh, Because as an actor, you get to go into a world that is not only about something, but it's also funny and so weird and and you just never knew there was always like a tension of like not only would you be killed off but a tension because it was so unpredictable but a tension of like what weird thing are they going to have me do i know it's coming <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. but really like my i think when my go to memories are just those first few episodes of season 2 when we're filming everything at the um Fellow, the 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 Fellowship of the Sun churches at the church camp with mm-hmm. Ryan Quanton, Anna Camp, and just getting to know them and bonding with them over the first because I'd never met them before, and I just loved them so much. They were so fun, so giving as actors, and I rarely have I ever been working with people that I felt like we were all on the same page as to what story the three of us were telling between our characters mm-hmm. and then getting to work with like Dennis O'Hare later on in the show and spoiler alert, the moment I found out I was going to be able to play a vampire on the show was that was a big moment because that's such a gift to be able to be one of the cast members that like gets to play the character as a human 
and then mm-hmm. gets to play the character as a vampire as well. So I felt very privileged to be able to do both of those things. Only a few of us really got to do that on the show. So then I got to reinvent the character halfway through the series, which was awesome, you know. And then I really got to geek out because I was like, now, now I get to play like a monster. Yeah. So like, a literal about, monster. <laughs> yeah, a literal monster. Um, so yeah, like you mentioned, obviously the show has been off the air for a long time. So if you're just like, oh, I didn't know, get caught up. Um, but you mentioned that Steve turns into a vampire. So like a, from kind of a effects standpoint, like what was it like having the teeth in and like dealing with, with blood? And like, did that change the approach that you had to, to Steve? I had made the decision that Steve pre-vampire was, I mean, I'm getting sort of abstract here, but pre-vampire Steve was the ego. Mm -hmm. And then post-vampire Steve would be the id. So I wanted to bring out as vampire Steve all the subconscious urges, desires, thoughts, personality traits, anything that was kept buried or put in the backseat of Steve, the human politician's mind gets to, the dark self, you know, the shadow self gets to come out when you're a vampire. And I was really thinking about that and thinking about him being a a snake, a rattlesnake of some kind. Um, And getting to the teeth was a blast. Like that was like a rite of passage. You go in, you got your teeth fit, you know, they'd make a mold of your teeth and then the FX wizards would, you know, sculpt these fangs and they're this just latex strip that's molded to your gums and you just fit them right over your teeth like a pair of dentures. And um, it's very low tech, but the all those teeth were also like I was told, like every each pair cost like $2,000. So they had to keep oh. them in like a special location and then like they were all in their own cases and you had to be very careful because you didn't want to break any (laughs) yeah i the bummer was i never got a shot a close-up shot where i had to bite into anybody's flesh so i only had the porcelain sharp teeth some people got soft teeth as well that would work for close-up so like if they're biting into some flesh um that wouldn't actually pierce the skin of the other actor yeah but, um, I mean, yeah, that was just such a thrill to get, you know, your own pair of teeth, you know, like that's, that's a souvenir, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Did you get a, a chance to keep them or? Yeah. When the series wrapped, they gave everyone who played a vampire, they gave their teeth. So I still have them there. Uh, they're in like a little keepsake area oh. in my home and you know, they're there. <laughs> You just—it's like a nice party trick. You just whoop them out. It's like, hey, yeah, I'm like, hey, my, my teeth. Yeah, it's it's nice. Or I think a lot of actors are sentimental about shows that they work on, especially shows that they like. So getting to bring home a piece of the set or a prop that was important to the character is always lovely. But to you know, on that, getting to to take home the teeth, you're like, well, this is this is literally part of the character I get to hold on to forever. Say 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Zooming out from your character to just the world of True Blood. So the show takes place in Louisiana. How important do you think that Southern backdrop was to to the story? And kind of there's a precedence that's been set with vampires in the South, obviously, kind of beginning with Anne Rice's vampires and now with True Blood and now with the AMC, like interview with the vampire show. Like, do you think setting it in the American South had any impact on the story? I definitely, I think so, just from, I mean, first of all, just having vampires set against, like, Spanish moss is just gorgeous, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> it's just got that, I mean, you the term Southern Gothic just hits right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, Charlene Harris is from the South, so she's writing to what she knows, and she's writing her, you know, romance novel, almost satirical take on, I think, Anne Rice's stuff as well. So, there, it's... It wouldn't have existed without Anne Anne Rice. I I don't I don't believe to begin with, um, but then you know I think with what the writers were going for in terms of vampires being a metaphor for minority groups and rights for minorities and setting that in a place where like this you know civil rights were being fought for for you know centuries. <laughs> Uh, makes a lot of sense as a living metaphor for a show. And it's not always a perfect metaphor because I think, you know, sometimes vampires are doing very terrible things and need, you know, (laughs) needed to be checked. And maybe, you know, like some of the vampires were not good. Um, (laughs) but, uh, But I think like that all adds to it as sort of like a setting for a show about, people that are feeling characters that are feeling oppressed and trying to make a voice for themselves you know so there's there's a political context there as well certainly absolutely yeah like I think I mentioned that in in part one just about how like there are some traits that are just so inherent to the vampire and it's like the political underbelly, the very, like, sexual underbelly, and if you've watched True Blood, you know that that is very, very much present in the show. Um, like, can, can you speak to how, like, what was the approach with kind of balancing the kind of, like, political structure of the vampire with this very, like, alluring, sexy uh, image of the vampire well, and how did those two work together I want to add to what you said too I think the other thing the other element there is religion right because yeah re- you know in America I feel like religion is still in many different communities very strong and thriving in the south that was the thing that you know I, I had a big aha moment I was shooting something else but you know I shot a little bit of um we shot a little bit of True Blood down in, in New Orleans, but I remember going to New Orleans and to shoot on another project and realizing like, oh, I get it. Like Catholicism is so strong down here, but there's also this like real um, embracement of 
lust and the taste mm-hmm. for life. And when you have those two things juxtaposed against each other, you get stuff like Mardi Gras and beads with penises on them. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> so the way they justify being horny drunks down here is by being like, hey, we're going to throw a huge party and then we're going to repent for 40 days. You know what I mean? So they, <laughs> you can feel the culture down in New Orleans and Louisiana struggling the, with those two The dynamics. guilt, and the, the bloodlust, the lust and the guilt go hand in hand with vampires. You know, So there's that, I need... I am this sexual creature. I desire, I have a lust for blood, but I also know, I'm also guilty about it. You know, it's very Catholic, you know? <laughs> um, Definitely. And and also when you think about the um, the sacrament, you know, and also that when, you know, I even as a Presbyterian, my father was Catholic, but I grew up Presbyterian because my mom was Presbyterian, but... You know, we have blood rituals in our churches. You know, we mm-hmm. communion is a blood ritual. We are told we're we are literally drinking the blood of Christ when we when we take communion. So there's that as well, right? I think we have to acknowledge yeah. that there is something hand in hand with with specifically Christianity, Catholicism, and and the vampire as well. You know, this idea of eternal damnation and what's going to happen to my soul, and uh, again, this idea of eternal life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's all very rich in the South as well. Um, now, your question was, how did I juggle, or how do you juggle the political aspects and the bloodlust? Well, that I think is more of the writer's job. I think as the actors, we just have to play the character that's on the page and that's on the text. And I think for specifically Steve Newland, who was a very political guy, mm-hmm. um, who then... Uh, became that which he hated publicly, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. I think you know. I've said this in in another interview recently, but like, w- I, there was a moment where I was like, "Oh, how do I justify this?" And I was like, "Oh, he doesn't have to. He can just say vampires are great now. You know, yeah. he can just <laughs> flip it on a dime and just." pretend as if he never said all that stuff before. Mm-hmm. And I I remember at the time going like, I don't know, would anyone buy that, you know, from someone who was an established politician? And now we are living in the age where literally, uh, especially on the on the right, people will say, oh, I, uh, I'd never vote for this guy. And then they're campaigning for him immediately. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. There, yeah. You don't need to, hypocrisy is such a, I think there used to be in politics you used to have to find a way around hypocrisy. Now you don't need to at all. You can just say, no, I never said that. Or who cares if I said that? I'm saying this now. And in some ways, I think that character of Steve Newland was sort of uh, sadly ahead of his t- ahead of his time. Um, but yeah, we're not, I think as the actors, we're not really thinking about the themes when we're playing the scene we're, we're just trying to play the scene as the, as the person, what do I want? What am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to get out of this other person? It's the show, it's the producers, it's Alan Ball's responsibility to kind of make all those themes work through these characters. Absolutely. I love that answer. So good. Because um, I didn't, I, I don't even know why I didn't put two and two together of just how deep the religious undertones of the vampire, like just how deep they go. Like I think there are so many different kind of, 
you know, like little ways that you can explore the vampire, whether that's, you know, sexually and like the queer undertones of the show and the or queer undertones of the vampire. And that is explored quite a bit within, you know, True Blood. Yeah. And I, um, I think you also can't underestimate and I don't want to take it away from the queer community because it, it certainly was written to be an allegory, I think, for that. But like, I also think we cannot underestimate the fear. I mean, Alan Ball has said that the show was about the terror of intimacy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even among straight people, there is a fear of sexuality. (laughs) And that's why I think, you know, why Dracula was so popular and was written during the Victorian era is because it was literally about letting go of all this buttoned up, you know, mannered behavior and being penetrated, you know, in, yeah. in one form or another. And here was Dracula, who was just like this very sexually liberated man that was taking another man's wife away from him and showing her this other side. So there's all there's always been this like very erotic. It's always been this very erotic undertone that I think. appeals and applies to the entire sexual spectrum right yeah like even at it's just it's core and it's root vampires are sexy yeah and so we have to make them sexy we have to let them be them it's the the ultimate kind of if they are a being between like man and god they are not inhibited by the societal pressures of a fear of intimacy yeah it's it's liberating i think you know it's funny it's funny that Steve Newland comes out. I mean, it makes sense that he comes out after being a vampire, but I think I think a vampire can identify however they choose. Mm-hmm. I always saw Steve as more bisexual than just gay. You know what I mean? I think like I think most vampires are very fluid. <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? I mean, you're around for that long. Yeah. You're going to take a couple samples. And I think a lot of it is once you cross that threshold into the other side, you're shaking off all the societal pressures and norms because they no longer apply to you. So any systemic oppression that's in place about how you should look, be, behave, that gets thrown out the window once you're a vampire. And I think that's the secret knowledge that vampires have that like, oh, this this is all a construct of society. It's all a patriarchal construct. None of this applies to us now. And so mm-hmm. any inhibition that might have been holding you back, like I think was holding Steve back when he was a human, because I think he was having, you know, clearly desiring Jason back then, Jason Stackhouse yeah. and not fully understanding why yet, you know, once you're a vampire, you're like, Oh, I get it. I don't need to worry about that anymore. I can allow, allow myself to, to let go of those, those, what society tells me I should be and how I should behave in, in whatever form that is. In now we're, we're kind of like, I think we're almost like 10 years from the finale of the series. Yeah. Coming up Um, on it. Yeah, very, very soon, it seems. So what do you think the, the lasting impact of, of True Blood is? Not just like, you know, on other vampire media, but also just kind of like TV as a as a whole, like now almost 10 years from the finale. Like, do you 
do people like still like talk about it with you? Like, is it something that still comes up to you? Like how relevant do you think it's? Yeah. I mean, we're doing it right now. Right. I mean, and, and I'll still, you know, people will still call it out, you know, when I'm out in public, um, I run into people all the time. They're like, Oh, I love true blood. I think what the show did was I remember telling people at the time because I worked on it before it, it came out. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling people at the time, I was like, it's sort of like Buffy, but if you could, if they actually showed all the sex scenes, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's this weird blend, and the books were a bit this way too. It's this weird blend of nerdy pop culture, romance novel, and like softcore porn, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was a show like that really did not have any limits where anything went or could go. And I think, you know, especially in the early seasons, I think the, it was just such a page turner and unpredictable and you would not know what, you know, the, the way they teased out the mystery of the supernatural world. And especially in the first two seasons, I think was so well done. It's brilliant. Yeah, it was brilliant. And, you know, I remember just people being like, what is Marianne? When are we going to find out what Marianne is? And I'm like, oh, you'll you'll find out. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I think it was just this. It sort of showed where you could take storytelling and genre with with cable. You know what I mean? That you could Mm -hmm. that there's really no limits like. Just because something is nerdy doesn't mean it has to f- fit into some sort of PG-13 or chaste, you know, um, box, I guess. I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say. That, like, you can go, yeah. and now we see it, you know, now Game of Thrones kind of took that and and really ran with it, you know, in this mm-hmm. very, like, grounded fantasy realm way. But I think that really started with with True Blood. It showed that like, oh yeah, you can do all this wild stuff with with genre. It doesn't just have to fit into like, you know, the the, the confinements of a comic book world. You know, where you feel like the it felt like the rules had been set already for vampire genres, but no one had ever seen what was going on behind closed doors with the vampires. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Um... So speaking of of books, you wrote a few uh, like companion pieces for the show, including a few comics and a book, Steve Newland's Field Guide to Vampires and Other Creatures <laughs> yeah, of yeah. Satan. Um, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, that was kind of like in the very early goings of the idea of like an expanded universe for for a show. Yeah, that well, I think I mean, I'm sure. First of all, I have to say the idea for that book was not mine. That was all Gianna Sobel, who who was a writer's assistant on the show and Alan's assistant um, for a period of time before that. I think she had pitched, I think she pitched or she came up with that idea with Alan or HBO had come to them to be like, hey, we want to do some sort of True Blood encyclopedia. What would that look like? And... I came into it after the idea had already been pitched and sold and, you know, Gianna had started working on it and she came to me and she said, Hey, I'm writing this book in Steve's voice. And I had been working with Gianna when I had been writing and co-writing the True Blood comic books for IDW. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so she and I already kind of had a working relationship. You know, the scripts would all get sent to her. She would give notes based on what Alan had to say we could or couldn't do. And so we had already had, uh, she had already written some of, or read some of the stuff that I'd written and co-written. And so she was like, do you want to write this with me? And I was like, yeah, why not? Sure, this sounds great. Because again, I was like, again, being a geek about the universe, like, you know, having read the books and was working on the comic books, I was very interested it's a it's a it's a blessing and a curse as an actor sometimes like i whatever show i'm working on i really get into the larger vision and oftentimes i start thinking about it as a writer as well and going oh they could do this they could do this you know i hope you know so it you know i got into the true blood world realm as much as a, I want to say, not fan, but just like, I really like that world. And I would sit yeah. and think about, oh, they should do this with this character. Any, I would, I would think about, in other words, I would think about that show often and where it was going beyond just what they were doing with Steve Newland. So mm-hmm. that was fun to get those opportunities to play in that sandbox, you know, just because I really cared about and still do care about that universe and those characters. Yeah, it it expands the universe. I think it's so, like, as a fan of the show, being able to have different pieces of media that you can interact with. And, like, at the time when the show is airing, like, in in between time, maybe between seasons, you want to, you know, keep up with the world and stay in the world of these characters. You can read these companion pieces. Yeah, and I think they had done, I mean, Star Wars had certainly done stuff that was, like, in-universe books and tomes and as far back as Twin Peaks you know you could go out and buy the secret diary of Laura Palmer you know that was an in-universe book and this was supposed to be like an in-universe book that 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 brought together not only the show timeline and mythology but brought in some of the other things that had been created in the comics and in some of the mini web series and stuff like that, it was just trying to bring together everything that had been all the different corners of the universe, which weren't always cohesive. You know, I don't really think the IDW comics were considered canon. It was the big challenge with mm-hmm. writing and co-writing those comics were the True Blood timeline was so tight episode yeah. to episode. It was really hard to figure out where you could fit stories in you know so i was always trying to pitch flashback stories um i remember trying to pitch a series that got shot down i wanted to do a whole um series for the comic book that took place i think in between seasons four and five when Suki was missing in the fairy realm and you know two years i think passed by for everybody else on the earthly plane and I was like, well, what happened in those two years when Suki was gone? They had to have been looking for her. And I pitched a story that was like the search for Suki. And I think the response I got back, and I don't I don't remember if this is from Gianna or not. <laughs> I love Gianna. But uh, it got shot down, and I think it was HBO just being like, oh, we've already moved past that. And I was like, no, 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 this is how this works. You get to go. This is what the comic should do is like go in and fill 
gaps the where there are gaps, you know, because that yeah. then then it feels like it 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 really counts, and that was hard. And the the comic book series didn't, unfortunately, didn't last too long. Hopefully, not just hopefully wasn't my fault, but we had a really hard time crossing over to the comic book and pop like the comic book nerdy guys i think really turned their nose up uh odd that they would do that there's such an um, there's such a welcoming community but so just notoriously yeah. <laughs> so friendly yeah. no but um i mean i speak as one of these people but i mean I'm, there were plenty of I, pl- I met plenty of nerdy guys who love the show over the year but i think there was something that happened True Blood and Twilight hit the scene around the same time and around the same time that San Diego Comic-Con went from being a little bit more niche to this much larger pop culture extravaganza. Yeah. And I know that a lot of, uh, uh, or I will say not a lot of, but a, a portion of the comic book collecting community, pop culture nerdy guys, people who probably grew up loving Buffy, were turned off by Twilight and angry that they felt like this girl's show is coming in on their territory. Look, I'm generalizing here, but this was the vibe. This was the vibe at the time, right? Yeah. And I think True Blood got lumped in there as well. So I think there was, with with a portion of the comic book and pop culture nerdy community, there there was a little bit of a that's not for us attitude when it came to Certainly Twilight, and I think True Blood as well. And I was like, these idiots are missing out. I mean, Twilight is just a superhero story. It's just replace replace superheroes with vampires. It's a, a superhero story. It's the same thing. Same yeah. thing. Same thing. Big battles between superpowered people, mm-hmm. romances, and then getting superpowers. Um, and then True Blood, I was like, this is the nerdiest shit out there. Like, this has everything. Everything that you really love. Does. Everything that you love is here. But I think we had I think we had a hard time specifically with the comic books of finding the audience for those books. And I would have it would blow my mind too. And then with the hardcore True Blood fans, I don't think they knew how to get comic books. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> they there was a lot of people watching the show that weren't comic book collectors, and I literally don't think they knew how to get them. I would post like, hey, new issue of True Blood out this week, blah, 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 and post it up on Twitter, put a link to where you could order it, or like say, go to your local comic book store, they'll have it. And I would get in my replies, what is this? Where can I buy it? How do I get it? When it was all there in the tweet, you know? <laughs> so that was like a weird, that was a weird thing that I kept going, why can't we get these two, two audiences two. to come together because it's got everything that everybody wants in it, you know? Well, hopefully this podcast will encourage people who were fans of True Blood to go back and, like, find them and read Yeah, them. if you want to. I mean, they're they're out there. There's, there's, like, more True Blood stories, you know, and there's some really fun stuff I think we got to do in there. Um, some some of the storylines are... are I like more than others. And the series got canceled halfway through a story that I was writing. And I had to like, literally there, I was supposed to have like two more issues to wrap it up before the next storyline. And they're like, you've got one issue. So I had to like cut a storyline short. So it was also like a very interesting lesson for me in trying to, you know, work with, 
work with a a pre-existing property where I really couldn't make any big changes or decisions. So you're very limited by what you can and cannot do. Um, There was a storyline that we were doing, Mark Andrico and I were doing for the comic, and we literally got a note back from the show where they were like, oh, this is going to happen in season four. So you have to rewrite this. So the show always came, you know, would always come first. So you'd have to be like, all right, well, I guess we had a good idea because they thought about it too, (laughs) but we're going to have to change it now. So it was a really, it was a really interesting lesson and a a good trial by fire. And I had a great time doing it. I'm just disappointed that it didn't, you know, it didn't last longer than it did. Well, I will, I will personally lead the charge of getting everyone to go back retroactively and 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 read the comics but i know we're we're getting close on time here so i have two more questions and then i'll let you go um just a fun little one if you could play any other character on the show other than your own who would you play on true blood Mm -hmm. huh well i'm not sure let me think about that i did audition i did audition for sam and I, I think I had a really bad audition for that. That was like for the pilot. I remember Libby Goldstein looking at me sideways while I was doing it. <laughs> I don't think I got it when I went in. I like didn't fully understand what, what, who, what the character was. Mm-hmm. I could not. I don't think I should have played Sam, and I they definitely should not have cast me. Sam Trammell was perfect for that part. Um, I mean, now I would say as I'm getting older. Russell Edgington, 100%. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't want to... I couldn't take any... I mean, you can't match Dennis O'Hare, but Mm -hmm. what a fun... What a fun fucking role, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, getting to play that character with so much power and so much humor, I think, would be a real, real delight. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think at the age, the only other character I might have been able... I might have been appropriate for somebody like Hoyt, you know. Okay, yeah. I think I could. I think I could have done. It would have been a different than Jim Parrick's Hoyt, but I think, you know, I was like, that's maybe where else I fit in, <laughs> you know. Certainly not. I couldn't do Bill. I couldn't. Couldn't do Eric. You know. <laughs> Those are like. So it seems like you were kind of more for like the more grounded roles because like Eric is a very that character is very much like entrenched in in vampire like the whole like yeah look i'm just not i'm just not hot enough to play eric let's be honest i'm a character actor i'm a character actor (laughs) i that's you know what i i get that that's that's that's, let's just be honest let's be honest (laughs) i did not have what 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 alexander skarsgård brings to that role and that's not to take away from his performance at all he's fantastic actor but i didn't have the goods for that come on Well, I think you would have done amazing in anything, but oh, thank you. that's just me who's asking me. So closing question. Why do you think we are so enamored with the vampire? We explored a lot of different aspects of it, but what do you think about it is constantly pulling us in and like constantly has us watching all these different shows? Well, I think we touched upon it a little bit earlier. I think like no matter where you are in time, it applies, right? Like if you're a repressed mm-hmm. Victorian housewife, Dracula uh or 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 gentlemen it applies if you are uh part of the queer community in the mid 2000s under uh the bush administration and we and you have not yet uh achieved you know equal status for 
for marriage, uh, which now again is up in the air. This fucking insane world. So I think it's it's always a pushback against conservatism and a patriarchal society that's trying to keep everyone uh, in their in in their idea of their of their place. So I think it always applies it's we are always going to have repressed desires we're always going to have aspects of our personalities that we're struggling with we're always going to be pushing back on limits of society and culture so that's the vampire's job you know we're like the zombie's job is to remind us of our own our own uh demise like our own Mm -hmm. ability to construct our own you know whether it's mass consumerism or climate change or nuclear holocaust like the zombie is there to be like you could also become this you know if you guys don't all take care of each other and take care of yourselves you can become mindless zombies Uh, but with the vampire it's always saying think about what think about how things could be think about if we didn't have the need for the vampire because we live in a world where everyone is accepted for their differences. I hope you enjoyed today's episode, Afternooners. If you don't know, the Afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an Afternooner now. I want to say a massive thank you to Michael McMillan. He was awesome. I hope you guys enjoyed our little chat. And he might be back on the pod in the near future. We just had that much of a good time. If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast. If you had a good time and it helps out the pod, you get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod. And I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at The Afternoon Special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at Hi, I'm Bobby, where I am both annoying and hilarious. And if you're thinking, Bobby, I just had to take in the concept of vampire media coinciding with economic crises. I'm not in the position to take in all this information. Bestie, I get it. So when you're ready, all that information will be in the description box down below. I hope you enjoyed this two-parter, the second part of this two-parter, and that you'll join me again next week for another pop culture deep dive. Later days, friends. Hey, this is Eric Malinsky, host of the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Each episode, I explore different sci-fi fantasy genres, talking with filmmakers, novelists, game designers, cosplayers, comic book artists, and anyone who works in the field of make-believe. I also look at the fan experience, asking, why do we suspend our disbelief? You can subscribe to Imaginary Worlds wherever you get your podcasts. Are you a Marvel fan? Matt, you know I am. Jeff, I was asking the listener. Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought it seemed like a weird question because, you know, we've been doing a Marvel podcast together for nine years now. No, no, I was trying to grab the attention of all the Marvel fans out there for this ad. Oh. I thought it was weird, too. You should definitely warn us. Good note, Ashley. Well, if you like Marvel movies and TV as much as we do, join us for the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. He did it again.